today. Extra, extra, read all about it in the Gotham Gazette. Where is Batman? No sighting of the Caped Crusader in weeks. Where is Batman? Extra, extra. Only I know the answer to this question, and it'll cost Gotham City a billion dollars to find out. <laughs> Professor Zoom Productions, in association with the Fire and Water Podcast Network, proudly present for your listening pleasure. The Done and One Wonders Podcast Wonder Show. Hosted by Professor Zoom Yukonori. Today's episode A Blast from the Past. Greetings and welcome to the 10th episode of the Done in One Wonders Podcast Wonder Show, a celebration of comic book tales that are able to tell a complete story within a single issue. A proud and an almost worthy member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I am your host, Professor Zoom Yukonori, and I am so delighted to be here. In fact, I am as charged as a longtime fan that was hit by a wave of nostalgia. And much of that excitement comes from my being able to introduce this episode's special guest. Direct from Gotham City of Earth-1 on the year 1983, I present the legendary caped crusader himself, the Batman. Hello and welcome to our humble podcast, sir. Greetings, Professor. Always happy to take a little time out from fighting crime to help entertain and educate the children with a recap of one of my adventures. And we appreciate you being here, sir. And this episode will no doubt be heard by numerous children of all ages. And don't forget Solomon Grundy, too. Oh, I haven't forgotten you, Grundy. I must admit, I was expecting to have to break up a fight when the Batman first arrived in the studio. Solomon Grundy fight pointy-eared man before. Indeed we have. Back in November of 1982, when a criminal gang had duped you into helping them rob a number of valuable furs and collectibles. The Batman is referring to the story published in Detective Comics, Volume 1, Issue 523. But I must point out that, in that instance, you fought a different Solomon Grundy. A spawn of the Solomon Grundy of Earth-1. This is the original Solomon Grundy of Earth-2. Another Grundy? However, you had fought this version of Solomon Grundy a couple of times in the past, alongside members of the Justice League and the Justice Society, in two adventures chronicled in Justice League of America, Volume 1, Issues 46-47, to and Issues 91-92. to Indeed. I do remember those cases, but I will have to take your word on the Earth Prime comic book publications. But all of that was a long time ago. We're all friends now, aren't we, Grundy? Little Professor Man, Grundy's friend. So any friend of Little Professor Man, Grundy's friend, too. Perhaps later we share skin moisturizing tips while we watch Little Magic Friendship Pony Show. Ah, right. I must admit I was a bit surprised when Batgirl told me about how you have been giving some of these super criminals a new lease on life here in this future time period. But I can see now that Solomon Grundy truly respects you. Little Professor Man, save Grundy from Giant Ice Wall. Mmm, that is one way to make friends. Well, ain't this all cozy like? Can't we turn on a few more lights? Mr. Manning, so glad you could join us. Lemo and I just got back from our visit to Bizarro World. Really? <sighs> If I had known, I would have liked to have accompanied you. It was a spontaneous thing, actually. I do trust Bizarro and his family, as well as our own Bizarro duplicates created two episodes ago, are doing well. In a manner of speaking. But if you're ever asked a guest on their podcast Warner show, don't. I will have to ask you about that later. But first, 
You, of course, know the Batman. We've met. Indeed we had. No hard feelings, Mr. Wayne? In regards to teaming up with the Penguin to hypnotize Superman into thinking he was the Wild West Outlaw, the Sundance Kid, or are you persuading my mesmerized super friend to attempt to gun me down? Uh, both? Podcast host and audio editor's note. The Batman is referring to the events chronicled in World's Finest, Volume 1, Issue 261. That may have been just a few years ago to you, but it's been a lot longer for me. The professor here saved me from a fate worse than death. I owe him plenty. You seem to be making a habit of this, Professor. Indeed. So I ain't been on the Owl Hoot Trail since the 1980s. Believe me. I want to believe you, Terra Man, but you still seem as shifty as ever. However, I am willing to give you the benefit of the doubt. If you are truly trying to go straight, you have my full support. Oh, uh, right. You know, I miss this Batman. This Batman? Mr. Manning. Oops. I mean, uh, do you mind if we turn on a few more lights so we can... I do. Oh. The more things change, the more they stay the same. Why don't we get to the done-in-one wonder we are spotlighting today? Lenos? Greetings and salutations. I am Lenos, the librarian of artistic media for evaluation and over-criticism. How may I serve you today? Fascinating. I had deduced Lanos as an acronym, but what he said actually spells... It is a running gag. Ah. So, another being that you have saved, Professor? Lanos is an extraterrestrial artificial intelligence, and he had actually saved himself. With the assistance of both yourself and entity Zoom Yukonori from the Zoom for Sam Earth. Do I want to know? You did ask. The short answer would be that this was all revealed in Episode 6 of the Done in One Wonders podcast Wonder Show. Lanos, please pull the digital file for Batman, Volume 1, Issue 336. Acknowledged. Thank you, Lanos. This issue of Batman is cover dated June of 1981, but according to the brilliant Mike's Amazing World of Comics website, it was on sale on March 5, 1981. I myself did not read it until late November of that year, as it was included in a Christmas care package sent by my Uncle Kenzo from the U.S. While you was living at that United Kingdom, was it really that hard getting funny books over thar? It was not impossible. But in the area in which I had lived, there was not much of a selection of DC comics at the local newsagent, and what comics they did have were fairly expensive since they were imported. My uncle purchased many of his comic books from a direct order outfit named Westfield, which offered a substantial discount. So he would order an extra copy of comic books that he thought I would like, and ship them to me in lots as part of the care packages he'd send twice a year while I was living abroad. At least until I had finished uni. But let us get back to this Batman issue, and the intriguing cover illustrated by artistic stalwart Jim Aparo. A mysterious masked man, wearing a royal crown and cloak, was pointing to a photo of the Batman printed on the front page of a Gotham newspaper. The headline exclaimed that the Dark Knight detective was missing. The word balloon dialogue suggested that this mystery man in the crown was not only responsible for the Batman's disappearance, but that he was holding him for a $1 billion ransom. But who was this man? And how did he capture the Batman? We needed to crack open the cover to find out. Now before we get in-depth, I should point out that, while I consider this to be a done-in-one-issue story, it was related to the previous four-issue storyline, which involved Batman, Robin, and Catwoman teaming up with government agent King Faraday to foil a scheme by Ra's al Ghul, which essentially resulted in the Batman being away from Gotham City, as well as the United States, for a number of weeks. Correct. Ra's al Ghul's scheme involved a corrupt international businessman named Gregorian Falstaff, 
whom Al Ghul used to take over a number of Bruce Wayne's corporate assets in order to add them to his own sinister global empire. My investigation into Falstaff's operations had taken me literally around the world and to a final showdown with Al Ghul at one of his remote bases, a volcanic island in the Indian Ocean. Infinity Island, which was destroyed along with entity Ras Al Ghul, when your battle unintentionally ignited the life-restoring chemicals of his Lazarus pit housed within. I had barely escaped with my life, thanks to a little help. And Al Ghul also survived that grisly fate, but that's another story. Indeed. A story chronicled in Batman Volume 1, Annual Number 8. The Messiah of the Crimson Sun. A rather flamboyant case title but accurate. But I suppose that's what I should expect from an alternate world that records my life history, in comic books. What case title did you use? Rachel Ghoul, Case File 14. Very succinct. Indeed. But to get back to this story in Batman Volume 1, Issue 336, what had happened to Gotham City during the weeks that Batman was gone? Let us find out in the tale entitled... While the Bat's Away Plotter Bob Rosakis Scripter Roy Thomas Artists Jose Luis Garcia Lopez Praise be his name And Frank McLaughlin Ah, uh, what? Oh, it is a sign of respect for the great comic book artist Jose Luis Garcia Lopez Praise be his name Everyone in our network says praise be his name after his name is mentioned Looking at the artwork of the first page your little friend Lanos here is projecting in the air, I can see why your broadcast network pays such respect. Indeed. But to continue the credits, Letterer John Costanza Colorist Adrienne Roy Editor Paul Levitz The story began with this dramatic splash page of the Goldman Incorporated Jewelers Store at 75 West 47th Street in downtown Gotham City. In the foreground crouched two police officers, both with guns drawn and positioned aside the front of their squad car. They both watched a strange red body-suited man, his body curled in a tight ball, smash through the front window of the jewelry store toward them. I love all the detail Jose Luis Garcia Lopez Praise be his name! Very nice. I love all of the detail he packed into this one scene. From the various New York-esque buildings in the background, to the signs and crosswalk signals on the street post, to the water slicks and discarded aluminum can along the curb of the sidewalk. And the motion of the officers, as well as the perspective of the entire scene, drew my eye directly to the red figure crashing through the store window. It created a sense of power around the man in red, despite his ridiculous fetal position. It was just brilliant. Holding his pose, the red-clad man, now seen holding a sack of stolen diamonds, bounced on the sidewalk and over the surprised policeman who noted that they could use their pistols since the restaurant on the opposite side of the street was closed, and thus there was little chance of hitting an innocent bystander. But their bullets were of little use against the man in red, who introduced himself as the bouncer, before he ricocheted off the restaurant sign and bounced higher and higher away over the city rooftops like a human rubber ball. The Bouncer a fiendishly-minded metallurgist who had constructed a special suit that allowed him to bounce tremendous distances and from great heights without injury. The suit was constructed from a compound composed of rubber, steel, and chrome, which Entity Bouncer had dubbed Elastoloy. In his first appearance in Detective Comics Volume 1, Issue 347, the Elastiloy suit was a copper-like color instead of red. I'd say that was an improvement. The old suit looked like... Mr. Manning. Like something I'd scrape off the bottom of my boots. Bitter? Hmm. The bottom panel of page two was a packed scene of activity beautifully rendered by Jose Luis Garcia Lopez. 
Praise be his name. The Night Owl news team was covering the aftermath of the jewelry robbery, with one newsman interviewing one of the officers, named Krupke, by the way, while the other officer was radioing dispatch from the squad car. And in the distance, the edge of the street corner had been cordoned off, as a helmeted officer directed a gawking couple to move along. One of the Night Owl news cameramen was filming a team of three paramedics rushing an injured person on a stretcher out of the front entrance of the jewelry store, which made me wonder exactly what happened while the bouncer conducted his robbery. The roving Night Owl news reporter asked Officer Krupke why the Batman was not there to help them deal with what was obviously a superhuman jewel thief. The officer responded that the masked crusader had not been seen in weeks. Because Pointy-Eared Man was gone stopping Ghouly Man with the flagpole on Fire Mountain Island. Something like that. Cut to, later that evening, at police headquarters. Officer Patrick brought copies of the latest edition of the city newspaper to Commissioner Gordon, who was not happy about the headlines, one of which stated... Where is the Batman? Is Gotham helpless without Batman? A wave of crime on the streets of Gotham City. Two plain-clothed officers, Jerry and Fred, were sitting in the commissioner's office. Jerry mentioned that they couldn't blame the papers for running such sensationalistic headlines, and the commissioner shot back that he blamed the police themselves. One man in a cape dropped out of sight for a few weeks, and suddenly they had a major crime wave on their hands. Fred asked if they should issue a denial that the Batman was missing. The commissioner said no, since they themselves did not know where the Batman was or why he was gone. Or if he would be coming back, Jerry added. Fred was quick to try to soften Jerry's harsh realization, but the commissioner was certain that the Batman was not dead and that he would stake his own life on that fact. Jerry and Fred left, and the commissioner turned away from the newspapers that he had tossed atop his desk. The top copy headline asked, Is Batman dead? Gordon looked out of his office window at the Gotham Night skyline, and noted that it wasn't his life that they were talking about. We have a clever transition to the top of page four. Another copy of the same newspaper in a similar angle as the one on the commissioner's desk, except this copy was now being held in the hand of a man who proclaimed that the Batman was not dead, but, quote, safely in his keeping. The man was addressing almost a dozen mid- to low-profile hoodlums and crooks, all standing attentively in a large foyer in the bottom of an ornate staircase. The group included the bouncer and a few other costumed characters that had not been seen since Batman comic book stories of the 1960s, which we will get to later. For now, the man at the top of the staircase with the newspaper, though cloaked in shadow as much as he was in a stereotypical royal cape, you know, the one with the spotted fur fringe, introduced himself as the Monarch of Menace a third-tier villain with a royal motif who had fought the Batman only twice, but in the same story, in Detective Comics, Volume 1, Issue 350. It pains me to admit it, but the Monarch of Menace was the first costume adversary I couldn't defeat. His gimmicked weaponry had completely overwhelmed me and he successfully escaped. After pulling a few grand larcenies, he had disappeared without a trace. Yes. The monarch had essentially retired to a jungle retreat to live off of his ill-gotten gains, until his teenage son, wanting to impress his father, used the monarch's masked identity and weapons to prove that he could be a successful criminal too. Except he was easily captured by Robin, which essentially ruined the monarch's reputation as the only criminal to ever escape from the Batman. So the real monarch returned to Gotham to save face by attempting to pull off another spectacular crime. However, since I was able to study the monarch's gadgets that we had confiscated from his son, I was able to devise a countermeasure for each one, and thus was able to finally apprehend the so-called king of crime. And now the monarch was free, presumably having served his time. 
As he addressed the cadre of crooks assembled in his hideout foyer, the monarch claimed that he had imprisoned the Batman as payback for the Batman putting him in prison all those years ago. And he would continue to keep the Batman under lock and key as long as the Gotham underworld continued to pay him 10% of what they steal. I'm surprised them crooks was willing to believe that huckster, especially since he'd show no proof he had the bat. One of the crooks did point out that the monarch did announce a few weeks prior that the Batman would vanish without a trace, and then the Batman had not been seen since. That seemed to be proof enough for some. Still, even if the bat was gone for good, it could have been someone else that could have taken him out. True, but the monarch was able to talk the talk, as it were. And the criminals assembled may not have been all that bright, or perhaps had a little too much wishful thinking. Or all of the above. At any rate, the bouncer readily gave the monarch his 10%, and the rest of the group agreed to the King of Crime's terms. A plain-clothed thug whispered to his colleague that the monarch's fee for keeping the Dark Knight detective out of their hair would have been cheap even at twice the price. The next page had taken place the next day, as a Wells Fargo Bank armored truck, while making its way through a downtown Gotham City Boulevard, was suddenly threatened by a giant lizard-dragon monster blocking its path. The guards fired their guns at the crouching, silent reptilian menace, unaware that their keys to the back of the truck had already been lifted by the man who had created this giant illusion in their minds. A man who was one of the crooks in the monarch's meeting on the previous page, the one clad in a costume so garish that it made my eyes hurt to look at it. The Spellbinder an artistic forger who decided to go for even bigger criminal games by becoming a costume supervillain. He had discovered the trance-inducing effects of modern op art and designed that garish outfit, which was equipped with a number of devices that could create hypnotic illusions. That mesmerizing menace and I had tangled thrice before. Indeed, way back in Detective Comics Volume 1, Issue 358, a Silver Age story published in 1966, and while that was the last Batman tale in which this villain had appeared, the Spellbinder did make one Bronze Age appearance before this story, in Superman, Volume 1, Issue 330, which was another done-in-one tale that ironically featured a greater master of mesmerization. Silver Age and Bronze Age? You make it sound like I've been operating as the Batman for decades. I am not 80 years old, you know. Uh, of course not. You can chalk those age categories up to our Earth Prime comic book filing system. Indeed. Please carry on. Very good. Despite the purple shades used to color the background, I presume the Spellbinder's robbery of the cash bags from the Wells Fargo truck had taken place during the daytime, for on the following page... The first caption stated that it was now night amid the gray spires and shadowed canyons of Gotham City. Alfred Pennyworth, butler to Bruce Wayne and aide to the Batman, entered the second Batcave located deep beneath the downtown Wayne Foundation building. He had been, quote, lingering in Europe for weeks and returned to Gotham upon hearing the news of Batman's disappearance. Alfred, along with Lucius Fox, had been summoned to Paris to help solve the attempted murder of famed French resistance fighter Mademoiselle Marie on May 7, 1945, only to find that Alfred himself was accused of the crime by Marie's own daughter, Julia Raymark. I had managed to find the real assassin, a Nazi spy with the French resistance that had managed to assume another identity as the then chief of police in Paris. I had also deduced, though I did not tell Alfred, that Alfred was Marie's lover and Julia's father. Alfred had known since two months after Julia was born, having been informed by a mutual friend of his and Marie's, Jacques Raymarque. Alfred had been sending money to Jacques and helping him look after Julia from afar for years. Alfred needed some time after facing his daughter in Paris, so I let him take a European vacation. Podcast host and audio editor's note. This story had taken place in Detective Comics, Volume 1, Issues 501 and 502, 
and it was a little more complicated than how Batman described. Not taking into account the fact that entity Julia Remarque appeared to be too young to have been born in late 1945 or early 1946. That could have just been the rendering of Julia by artist Don Newton. Regardless, I had noted a discrepancy of these events in this story. Here, entity Alfred Pennyworth was allegedly returning from Europe. And yet, at the end of the previous storyline, in Batman Volume 1, Issue 335, Entity Alfred Pennyworth was shown to be looking after an injured Entity Bruce Wayne. What? No, no. I was badly injured after the battle with Al Ghul. It had taken me over a week to recover, but Alfred was still in Europe during that time. I was actually in the care of Dr. Douglas Dundee and Talia. Most likely more in the care of Talia Al Ghul, I bet. Mr. Manning. He's not wrong. Batman. Talia's healing salves have done wonders for my recovery. Was it the salves or the fact that she was the one who applied them? Let us get back to the story, shall we? So we should disregard the Alfred appearance in the previous issue of the Batman comic and continue with Alfred's return to Gotham and the Batcave in this issue. Alfred returned to a dark and seemingly empty Batcave. He put his hat, suitcase, and umbrella down on the desk in front of him and reached for a master light switch. He still had his trench coat draped over his arm and still held a copy of the same Gotham newspaper with the headline, Is Batman Dead? In his thoughts, Alfred wondered if the Batman was indeed truly gone and he felt guilty for being away for so long at a time when the caped crusader may had required his aid. While not much happened in terms of action, I do like how the penciler José Luis García López Praise be his name! had enabled the story to stop and take a breath by drawing out this scene across the six panels of this page with a variety of angles to keep the scene visually interesting, as well as punctuate the thoughts of despair in Alfred's head. This was especially true in panel two, which showed a tiny silhouetted figure of the butler behind the vast expanse of the darkened Batcave. And I particularly liked panel four, which portrayed Alfred in the motion of doffing his derby. And that was the key word here. Derby? No, motion. This panel was just a static image, but I could somehow see in my mind the full action of Alfred taking his hat off of his head and placing it on his suitcase, just from this single image. Also, the way Alfred stood, the look of his profiled face as he gazed off panel at the empty Batcave, and even the manner in which his fingers gripped both the brim of his hat and the newspaper. The body language brilliantly exuded that air of British dignity that we would come to expect from Bruce Wayne's butler. That was something Mr. Garcia Lopez, Praise be his name, easily conveyed with the way he depicted Alfred, which very few artists could match in my opinion. As Alfred reached for the master light switch, he thought that the very idea of Batman being gone still seemed impossible. He kept expecting to see him, to hear his voice, to feel... His thoughts were interrupted as a blue-gloved hand grabbed his wrist from the shadows. The hand released Alfred's wrist and turned on the master light switch, revealing a full body shot of the Batman. The Batman apologized for not speaking up when he had noticed Alfred had come into the cave. I suppose I was deep in thought. As much as Alfred was at the time, I'm sure. Uh-huh. You always do your deep thinking in the dark? Grundy think pointy-ear man like to scare Derby man for fun. Well, there's nothing like a little jolt of surprise now and then to keep the old circulation going. Uh, yes. At least you were so kind to welcome Alfred home. Alfred then asked about your welfare, but you did not really give him a straight answer. Let's just say that I had been away. But now I was back. 
That was good enough for Alfred, who, as he watched you leap into the Batmobile, stated that you certainly were back, and most decidedly, too. The next page cut to Commissioner Gordon's office a short time later. The Commissioner, Fred, and Jerry were looking over a legal-sized card that was mailed to the police, which contained a clue signed by the Clue Master. The Clue Master, a one-time villain that Robin and I had sent to prison for committing a short series of Riddler-type crimes. The Commissioner himself did refer to the Clue Master as a, quote, bargain basement imitation of the Riddler. The clue was a set of map coordinates. 41 degrees, 46 minutes north, 50 degrees, 14 minutes west, followed by the message, Apply Yourself. While the three policemen checked the global map on the wall of the commissioner's office, noting that there was nothing at that longitude and latitude but salt water and seals, we saw that the Batman was hanging upside down outside the office window, observing everything. The commissioner quickly turned toward that window. He had thought that he had seen someone out there for a second, out of the corner of his eye, but there was nothing but the full moon and the Gotham City skyline. I guess it was just wishful thinking, the commissioner muttered, as the shadow of the Batman moved unseen across the outer building wall. The commissioner was correct about the Clue Master being a poor man's Riddler. While we had only met once, that hadn't stopped me from figuring out his little clue. Both of them, in fact. Both? There were two? The first one were the map coordinates, which were pretty obvious to one who had sailed his own Bat-Sub. The Clue Master was spelling out the location of the long-sunken Titanic. The second was the apply-yourself remark. I get it. The Clue Master was pulling a job at the Titanic Appliance Center. A good deduction, Terraman. I commend you. Well, I just looked at the comic page that showed you swinging your way over thar. Still a bit of a cheat, are we, Mr. Manning? I suppose old habits do die hard. But least I admit, I'm an honest cheat. I cannot argue with that. While this titanic clue was an awful pun, at least the Clue Master stopped using those topsy-turvy clues from our last encounter. That's right. The Clue Master's clues used in the Detective Comics Volume 1, Issue 351 story involved picture drawings that looked like one thing viewed one way, and then something else when turned upside down. And that brings up another point about the Clue Master. In the Detective Comics story from the 1960s, the Clue Master was leaving clues that he intended for you to solve because he wanted you and Robin to be on the scene of his crimes so that he could plant something on you or your Batmobile in order to trace the location of your Batcave and presumably your secret identity. He believed that attacking me as my alter ego would give him an advantage, and he would not be wrong. But Robin and I deduced the Clue Master's scheme and even laid out a few false clues of our own to throw him off track. What was interesting about his earlier plan was that we did not even solve his first clue. We just happened to stumble upon his first robbery while on patrol. But since those simple clues had led to him going to prison, the Clue Master obviously decided to try harder. Indeed. Back to the story, on page 9, panel 4. The Batman silently swung into the open delivery entrance of the Titanic Appliance Center and alighted on the trailer of one of the delivery trucks one that was being loaded with crates by four hard-working thugs under the direction of the Clue Master, who nonchalantly stated that there was no need to hurry. They had all night. He was so certain the police would not figure out his clue, but he did not figure on me. Indeed. One of the thugs looked up and saw you atop the trailer, stating that they definitely did not have all night to finish the job. The Clue Master was confused by the remark until he noticed something on the floor. Wait, that shadow, he cried. Ah, how quickly they forget. I was not the shadow. In fact, the shadow had retired. The Clue Master and his gang looked up in surprise at the Batman crouched atop the truck trailer. But the human utility belt managed to recover quickly enough to pull a large smoke capsule off his costume and break it open boasting that the smoke would take care of both the gang's escape 
and the Batman's lungs. Of course, the next dramatic panel showed the Batman leaping forward, a gas mask already affixed upon his face. I had already cataloged all of the Clue Master's capsules the first time I had hauled him to prison. Too bad he did not spend his time behind bars improving his act, or at least the company he kept. Indeed, in the final panel of page 10, beautifully staged by Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, Praise be his name! name. You had essentially taken down all four of his thugs at once. One by right foot, one by right elbow, and two by a swinging left fist. On the top of page 11, the Clue Master admitted to having trouble seeing through his own smokescreen. But once he could make out your defining bat shape, he readied another capsule, which the Batman had easily knocked out of his hand with a batarang. I guess I had forgotten to mention that I had added smoke-resistant contact lenses to my repertoire since we had last fought, so my vision was not obscured as he had hoped. The dropped capsule was a concussion grenade, which exploded right beside the Clue Master, knocking him off balance and setting him up to be tackled by the Caped Crusader. All of those years in the big house, and the Clue Master was caught on his first caper after he was let out. Maybe he should have stuck to being the prop man for the prison variety show. It was only minutes later that the Batman was swinging on his bat rope to resume his patrol of Gotham City. Clue Master and company were all nice and cozy where I had left them. Where'd pointy-eared man leave Clue Man and company? I don't think we want to know. I had thought that perhaps one of them would eventually crack and tell me who was behind this crime wave, since I did not yet know at the time. True, but you would find out who in the very next panel, as you had come across a trio of crooks wearing similar yellow costumes, using a blowtorch gun to burn their way through a side entrance of a bank. One of them had mentioned the Monarch of Menace by name. Indeed. As you dropped in on the criminal trio, who proclaimed that you were supposed to be locked up somewhere, the one with the blowtorch found the courage to use his tool to try to burn you. The key word was try, for I had quickly brought up my cape, which was just heat retardant enough to protect me for about three seconds. Which was two seconds more than you needed, as you kicked the goon with the blowtorch as you swung in, and then used both of your fists to sock the other two at the same time. Somebody was on the shoot that night. But what you did not realize was there was a fourth member of this costumed gang, who was around the corner acting as a lookout. And while he did not see you coming from the opposite direction, he did see you KO the rest of his gang. And thus made his way back to the lair of the monarch, and informed the king of crime of what he had seen and what he now knew, that the monarch had lied about him having captured the Batman. The thug was willing to not tell the other crooks, provided that he received a share of the loot that the monarch had received from them. The monarch feigned to be impressed by the thug's initiative, before killing him with an electric shock from his scepter. Who bore howdy? Talk about no honor amongst thieves. Indeed. That would be another crime for which the monarch would pay. No honor amongst thieves. Processing. Now that the monarch knew that the Batman had reappeared in Gotham, he needed to make plans. Early the following morning, at the Wayne Foundation building, Bruce Wayne and Lucius Fox had called an emergency meeting of representatives of all firms in which Wayne Enterprises had an interest essentially to address the issue of the recent manipulations from Gregorian Falstaff in the previous storyline. One of the representatives, Bill, pointed out that Mr. Wayne's absence the past few weeks had bolstered rumors of financial problems in his company. Bruce Wayne and Batman dropped out of sight for a few weeks at the same time? What a coinkydink. Bill had a point and he suggested that I issue a statement of what I had been up to during my absence. My cover story would have to wait, but right then I simply told Bill what I had told Alfred. I had been away, but now I was back. And, as Alfred Pennyworth would say, most decidedly. It was nightfall on the top of page 15, and police squad car 1140 was on patrol in downtown Gotham City. 
with Police Commissioner Gordon himself riding along. The commissioner felt that, given all of the Batman is dead rumors in the media, it would be good for police morale if he at least put in a public appearance. Gordon spotted a robbery in progress down the street. Four thugs were carrying expensive fur coats through the broken front window of a boutique store and were loading them into what looked to be a small U-Haul truck. The police moved in, pulling up on the sidewalk and drawing their guns from behind the open squad car doors, while the hoods themselves had taken cover inside the store. The commissioner himself demanded, quote, the cheap hoods to come out with their hands up. The criminal gang stayed inside, but their leader leaped out of the broken store window. It was the Spellbinder, very pleased to have a class audience on hand to catch his mesmerizing act. Before we continue, I must point out how much I love how artist Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, Praise be his name, had laid out this particular page. Even though there was no Batman action, the panels flowed like a scene from a police drama on TV or in a film. The pacing and angles were very cinematic. It was all just wonderful. The Spellbinder performed a cartwheel, which to me was a nod to the first time he had hypnotized the Batman back in Detective Comics Volume 1, Issue 358. Gordon and the patrolman of squad car 1140 were stunned to find themselves surrounded by giant rats, which were impervious to their bullets. One of the thugs in Spellbinder's gang was dumbfounded as he saw the cops firing shots high over their heads. What are they talking about, boss? I don't see no rats. The Spellbinder explained that the thug did not see him cast his op-art spell, which was affecting the policeman's optic nerves. He then told the thug to just keep loading the furs. Meanwhile, the commissioner had emptied his gun as the illusionary rats continued to advance toward him, but he had also spotted a huge, monstrous flying shape above the rats, like a bat, and he wondered if that creature was going to attack him as well. However, the Spellbinder and his fur-laden minions had witnessed a far different sight, yet another dramatic approach by the Batman. The Spellbinder figured that the Dark Knight detective must have escaped the monarch's imprisonment somehow, but he would soon wish that he had been back in stir once he cast another op-art spell. I was not going to give him that chance. Since I was aware of his armored car heist the previous day, I had a special capsule with my utility belt just for him. And you slammed that capsule on the ground right in front of the spellcasting spellbinder, and out of it exploded several strips of aluminium foil, which distorted the villain's visual spells and reflected them back on him. Check. I figured that if aluminum foil could mess up a whole radar network, it would do the same to his op-art nonsense. I must say I love the layout of this panel in which you had explained all of that. Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, Praise be his name, produced a clever layout of the numerous flying strips of foil, all containing various partial reflections of you throwing your right fist forward and into the Spellbinder's jaw. Indeed. It was interesting to see how that looked from the Spellbinder's point of view. I had presumed you would have captured the Spellbinder and left him for Gordon and the Patrolman. However, in the final panel of page 17, the police officers regained their vision and noted that the Spellbinder and his gang were gone, along with a van full of stolen furs. So did they escape your clutches somehow? Now, Professor, let's not get ahead of ourselves. Ah, indeed. In his thoughts, the Commissioner wondered if he had actually heard your voice somewhere behind that recent illusion, or if it was just another hopeful dream. I suppose I should have let Jim know that I was alive and well, but my plan required- Now, Batman, sir, let us not get ahead of ourselves. Ah, indeed, Professor. Page 18 cut back to the foyer and the grand staircase of the Monarch of Menace's luxurious hideout, where a number of crooks seen earlier in the story, including the bouncer and the apparently not apprehended spellbinder, were receiving an announcement from their host. 
Essentially, the monarch had decided to kill the Batman before their very eyes on that very night, after he had received one final payout from all assembled. After all, once the Batman was dead, they would no longer need to pay tribute to the monarch to keep him imprisoned. But King Man don't have Pointier Man in prison. He's just pulling the long bow to be on the wind, Grundy. But I think he's about to be nailed to the counter. Wouldn't them outlaws get a mite suspicious? Why would he kill off the bat that's laying the golden egg? One of the thugs did ask that question, Mr. Manning. The monarch claimed that he needed to leave Gotham City for health reasons, and they all knew how unhealthy the air was at the time. And still is. So before the monarch headed out, should he had simply let the Batman go to foil their criminal schemes yet again? The crooks assembled wanted none of that, so they all lined up to set their ill-gotten gains at the feet of the Monarch of Menace. All except one, the Spellbinder, who proclaimed that the Monarch would not receive one red cent from him, not to kill the Batman, and not even to go toward his bail. The Monarch was aghast. The Spellbinder would dare refuse payment to the man who would kill the Batman for him. The Spellbinder then pulled off his hood, revealing to the astonished criminals assembled the scowling cowl of the Batman underneath. Ooh, yeah, we saw that coming. We did? But how'd Batman even know where the monarch's hideout was in the first place? Did he force the info from the Spellbinder himself, or...? Actually, the Spellbinder had kept his invitation to his first meeting with the Monarch of Menace in his getaway vehicle. It contained a map with the location to his lair. Perhaps the Spellbinder was not very good at remembering directions. At the top of page 20, you had somehow managed to shed the rest of your Spellbinder disguise and stood in your full Batman costume. The art of the quick change was a requirement for costume crime fighting. Ah, indeed. The Monarch started to retreat up the Grand Staircase, and he was not the only one making an exit, as a number of the crooks assembled started to run away, from what I see now was a raised foyer. Numerous thugs were leaping over the railing or bolting down another set of stairs to the level below. I told those cheap two-bit hoods to run, for it was not the likes of them that I was after that night. It was the Monarch of Menace. I figured if they knew I was after bigger game, most of them would head for cover. And that idea had worked, at least in part. Now I had to see if I had enough speed and muscle to handle the few who stayed behind. There did not seem to be any doubt, as the second panel of page 20 had you taking down four of the remaining crooks, who had no doubt thought they could take you on if they worked together. However, standing on the railing of the raised foyer behind you was... The Bouncer, who leaped off the railing and bounced off the floor of the level below then recoiled off the back wall and was heading straight towards you, intending to smash into you at full speed. Or so he had thought. One well-placed kick sent him hurtling away, and in the confined space of the monarch's hideout, his elastiloy suit forced him to repeatedly bounce faster, more forcefully and more uncontrollably. Indeed. There was a wonderful above-angle shot of the bouncer ricocheting off the various surfaces of the raised foyer and the level below, knocking into some of the escaping crooks in the process. Hoo-wee! Batman used old bouncy boy to do most of the job for him. Exactly! And that made it easier for you to concentrate on the monarch himself. I liked the funny banter you had delivered as you leapt onto a chandelier to swing onto the upper balcony, where the monarch was fleeing into a doorway. You told him to just give it up, for he would never make it in the criminal underworld wearing a costume like his, because Burger King would sue him for trademark infringement. I was hoping to goad him into making a stand, but no go. So I had to follow him into a dark corridor. A corridor that was so dark, you yourself did not realize that the monarch had already ducked into a shadowed alcove by the entryway, and that you had actually run past him. At least until he responded to your next attempt to goad him. Right. I told him that his criminal pals wouldn't like him running off and leaving them holding the bag as it were, and he responded from behind me, which I have to admit I did not expect. So score one for the monarch. He boasted that he was scarcely fleeing. He wanted me to follow him so he could kill me in private. 
That's pretty big talk from a dude who let other dudes do his nibbling for him. But is that not traditionally the way of kings, of which the monarch essentially believed himself to be? He had a royal ego to be sure, which I had taken advantage of by asking him how he knew that I was not going to simply show up weeks ago to spoil his claim that he had gotten me out of the way for his fellow criminals. You got him monologuing, didn't you? Indeed. Mono what? Talking about himself and his plans instead of simply trying to kill the Batman. Though the monarch vaguely stated that he had his ways of knowing that the Batman had been adventuring all over the globe for the past few weeks. So the monarch made up the story of capturing the Batman in order to dupe the other crooks into paying him a king's ransom and would just take off with their loot once the Batman had returned. Like Kingman was about to do just now. Right. And if the Batman had actually perished abroad, the monarch may have found a way to take credit for that death. That, that would, would not have been, been acceptable, acceptable to Entity Ras al Ghul, whom I calculate would have been the one to actually slay Entity Batman in Entity Monarch of Menace's hypothetical scenario. But that was a moot point, wasn't it? While the Monarch ranted on, I made sure I was ready for any of his gimmicked weaponry. The gas vents from his cape, electric shocks from his scepter, the crown jewels that hypnotize. And the Monarch seemed to guess what you were doing, and decided to attack you in a way you would not expect. And that was to choke you to death with his bare hands. And in an awful sequence of four panels at the top of page 24, the Monarch of Menace tightened his hands around the Batman's windpipe, and despite the Dark Knight detective's struggling attempts to push his attacker back, he eventually went limp and collapsed at the Monarch's feet. Wait, what? Wait for it. The Monarch looked down at his curled fingers. He admitted aloud that he was not as positive as he had boasted that he could kill the Batman barehanded, and yet he did it. But pointy-eared man is right. Wait for it. Suddenly, a blue-gloved hand reached up and clutched the monarch's cape. And then I said to him, Did you also cry wolf when you were a toddler king? You was playing possum, weren't you? I knew you'd be ready for that unspected attack. Indeed. I then proceeded to pull the monarch's gimmick cloak over his head, activating the gas jets within it to knock him out. And that, as they say, was a rap, gentlemen. The final page of the story began with a cinematic series of shots of a quiet Gotham City, starting from the Gotham River Bridge to the window of Commissioner Gordon's office. Inside, Gordon commended the Batman for the haul he had brought in that night, four costumed criminals and a good handful of top hoodlums to boot. Of course, a few of them may get off through the courts on a technicality, claiming that the Batman had violated their civil rights, but at least it would be a while before they would show their faces in Gotham City again. Indeed. Why not let Superman and the rest of the Justice League have a crack at them, eh? All the same, Gordon did wish that you had let him know that you had planned to skip town for a while. All those Batman is dead stories in the media were slightly exaggerated, as a man from Missouri once said. Entity Mark Twain of course, I myself could not have foreseen what lengths my investigation into Gregorian Falstaff would go, considering the length of time. However, those circulated rumors had brought more rats out of hiding than a derailed carload of cheese, and the Commission acknowledged that. And now that the Gotham crime wave was quelled, I had much needed sleep to catch up on. And while the Batman leapt out the window and swung away to a well-deserved rest, the commissioner intended to take a long, leisurely look at the early morning papers, one headline of which proclaimed, Batman, Alive. And that was the end of While the Bat's Away, from Batman, Volume 1, Issue 336. Solomon Grundy say so much happened that Grundy could hardly keep up. Indeed, Mr. Grundy. To summarize, this 25-page story plot by Bob Rosakis was chock-full of action and nostalgia, with six crimes committed, six bat fights, many with multiple opponents, intense police action, two spellbinding feats involving giant monsters, 
and a clever use of four ridiculous third-string villains who were so obscure that the comics had never revealed their real names and backstory. At least not until the post-Christ... Um... I'm sorry, post-what? Uh, I meant to say that in future Batman stories, we learn more about the real names and backstories of some of these now two-note villains. It was possible that stories such as this Batman tale which had taken goofy characters from the 1960s, even retaining the exact look of their ridiculous 1960s-designed outfits, and made them surprisingly work in the 1980s. Tales like these may have opened the door to DC Comics refreshing some of their other charmingly ludicrous concepts from the past. So some of these fiends will be back. No surprise there, really. The prisons do have a revolving door, I suppose. I have something exciting to look forward to. Uh, yes. Yes, indeed. But speaking of the 1960s, this story seemed, at least to me, to have a respectful reverence to the Batman television show featuring actor Adam West that had first aired in 1966. There were, again, goofy villains in ridiculous outfits that were played straight, larger-than-life villain sets, and a number of pow zock sowie fistfights though the sound effects were modernized to puck, wop, and spatak. I am just surprised that my exploits were performed on your world's television so early in my crime-fighting career. Seasoning the plot was Roy Thomas's snappy dialogue, which made even the necessary exposition a joy to read, especially the words proclaimed by the Monarch of Menace, who was royally committed to his role-playing. Ooch. The Clue Master wasn't the only one who had a problem with puns. As well as the banter from Batman, which added a refreshing bit of levity to the costumed hero melodrama. And yet it did not go so far as to make the story as absurd as the adversaries. In fact, to me, Batman cracking wise came across more like a psychological attack on his opponent's self-esteem, as opposed to, say, the banter of Spider-Man, which typically served to rile up his foes to the point that they would become careless. Actually, in many cases, riling up my foes was my intent as well. True, but I don't believe there was an example of this in this story, except for maybe the Burger King crack. Check, Professor. I also couldn't help but notice some other sly references to pop culture in the script, such as Officer Krupke. West Side Story, as well as two other officers named Tom and Jerry. Tom and Jerry. That was what I had said. And there was also the aforementioned men from Missouri. Entity Mark Twain. Right. Again, this may have been another clever nod to the Batman 1966 series, which would also feature tie-ins to the pop culture at the time. Though I understand pop culture tie-ins may have been just a common device in Roy Thomas' stories. Regarding the artwork, the brilliant pencil layouts by Jose Luis Garcia Lopez Praise be his name. name! were definitely worthy of that praise. I had found every panel to be a delight to behold. Every scene was so cinematic, whether it be the bombastic knockout fight on page 20, or the dramatic discussions in Commissioner Gordon's office on page 3, or the Wayne Foundation boardroom on page 14. On every page, the characters' facial expressions and body language, especially hand gestures, served to punctuate the action and the dialogue. There was actually never a dull moment. And the backgrounds were full of so much detail, and yet did not distract from the story. The city streets looked gritty, and the monarch's castle-esque headquarters was, again, ridiculously larger than life. Yet at the same time, it had the feel of a movie set. Probably because we had never seen the exterior in the story. So what may had seemed to be a medieval castle secluded in the surrounding woodlands could actually have been the interior of a tin-roofed warehouse near the waterfront. Actually, it was... And that was okay. I really did not need to know. The mystery was all part of the fun for me. I'm sorry, were you about to say something, Batman? Never mind. It was not important. To continue, Frank McLaughlin's inks were very sharp. 
Mr. McLaughlin had always been one of my favorite inkers in the Bronze Age, especially for Dick Dillon's Justice League of America work. To me, Mr. McLaughlin was second only to Dick Giordano in regards to inking, which I suppose was no surprise, as I understand Mr. McLaughlin would provide uncredited assistance to Mr. Giordano's inking assignments on occasion. And while my deuter anomaly may not allow me to fully appreciate it, the color work by Adrienne Roy had made a number of these scenes truly pop, especially the electrocution of the blackmailing thug on page 13 and the unmasking of Spellbinder on page 19. And I do need to point out some of the clever artistic effects by the art team in this story, like Gordon's view of the Batman as part of Spellbinder's illusion on page 16, the reflections on the foil strips on page 17, and one recurring effect that is, surprisingly, the one minor quibble I had with the artwork. Well, not so much a quibble as a missed opportunity. I am referring to the artistic choice to have the Monarch of Menace's face to be either cropped off-panel or enshrouded in shadow for all of his scenes before page 23. It had the hallmarks of teasing some big reveal, and given that he was revealed as the Monarch of Menace by name pretty much from the beginning of the story, I had expected some other type of surprise reveal near the end of the story. That this person was not the actual Monarch of Menace, for example, but someone else posing as him. Perhaps his son, who had impersonated him before, or perhaps someone involved in the previous Ra's al Ghul story. Or perhaps the reveal was that something horrible happened to the monarch's face while he was in prison. Just something to explain all of the shadow play. Perhaps the original plot by Entity Bob Rosakis was to keep Entity Monarch of Menace's identity a secret throughout the story. And the early reveal was a last-minute change by scripter Entity Roy Thomas. After the pencil artwork was completed by Entity Jose Luis Garcia Lopez. Praise be his name! That is a possibility. I suppose we would have to ask Mr. Garcia Lopez. Praise be his name! If we ever have the opportunity. Well, I am glad that you found this tale to be particularly extraordinary. But to me, it was just another week in Gotham City. Speaking of which, I should be heading back. I know you had promised to return me to the same moment that I had left, but I myself am not getting any younger. Indeed. It was a pleasure, and an honor, to have you on our show, Batman. And I am honored to know the fine work you are doing here to rehabilitate these two formerly ruthless supervillains. I must admit, when Batgirl told me about your operation a few years ago, I was skeptical. But now that I had observed it for myself... Wait a minute. Was that the reason why you accepted the professor's invite? One of the reasons, Mr. Manning. But you cannot really blame me, can you? Nope, I guess not. Adios, Bats. If you happen to run into me in the 1980s, just remember where I'll eventually end up. Fair enough. Ready? Bye, pointy-eared man. Maybe you come back again? Maybe. So it's until next time, then. Lanos? Activating Transdimensional Portal to Earth-1 Gotham City, New Jersey, May 26th, 1983, at 4.30 Coordinated Universal Time. Gentlemen? I miss that, Batman. Maybe Little Professor Man can pluck pointy eared Man from end of pre-crisis timeline to join Zoom Crew. Uh, now I don't know if that's a good idea. Indeed, Mr. Manning. For one, I cannot see Batman simply giving up crime fighting to become a podcast host. And two, although the crisis was a set event at a fixed point in time, the post-crisis effects on Batman's timeline did not fully solidify until some time afterward. In fact, it is difficult to pinpoint precisely when his pre-crisis timeline ended and his post-crisis timeline began. Oh. Wait, did you have a different reason for why Batman joining the Zoom crew would not be a good idea? 
Oh, uh, just what you said about him not wanting to stop fighting crimes. Indeed. Lemo. At first, this no am job for Zoom crew. Me not need help. Bizarro, what is it? I mean, what am not happening? Bizarro Zoom crew gone. Not use transporter to escape. Escape? He means they were captured. But by whom? And why? The Dunn and One Wonders Podcast Wonder Show is an unabashedly conceited member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Feedback for the show can be left at fireandwaterpodcast.com, via email at wondersdone at gmail.com, or by voicemail at area code 415-779-4668. The views expressed on Dun and One Wonders belong solely to the host and his cast of characters, who are not affiliated in any way with any professional comic book publisher or entertainment company. All copyright and trademarks of comic book characters and related concepts, as well as music, audio clips, and quoted text, are held by their respective owners. These are used for entertainment purposes only, and no copyright infringement is intended. Celebrity voices are impersonated, with special thanks to Will Rogers for providing the voice of The Batman and The Monarch of Menace. The Done in One Wonders Podcast Wonder Show is a Professor Zoom Productions production. This episode of the Done in One Wonders Podcast Wonder Show is dedicated to the memory of the late, great Adam West and the way he brilliantly brought the Batman to life.